0: Let's pray. Father, thank you for a chance to come and uh, be shaped by your word this morning. Lord, we we need you. We need what you have given us in your written word. And we pray, Lord, that you would shape us as a church, that you would build us more uh, into the image of Christ, that we would be strong, that we would be humble, that we would be holy, that we would be righteous, that we would be loving and compassionate, Lord, do those things in us, work in us this morning, Spirit, through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. If you were with us last week, um, I introduced this short sermon series on the idea of church discipline. I said we're in a tight spot as a church right now where we have, uh, we've got some significant weakness, we have some significant challenges that are coming against us. How do we as a church deal with challenges, especially interpersonal challenges. If, if If you've been alive for more than a few years, and if you've been in a church for more than a few weeks, you've probably had some kind of uncomfortable interaction. Somebody has hurt you. The reality is, we as Christians, we are not perfect by far. We are forgiven, and someday we will be perfected by God in his kingdom. If you are in Christ right now, no matter how messed up you think you are, someday he will complete the work of perfecting you, and you'll live for eternity with him with no sin, no guilt, no shame, no like stumbling over your words or accidentally saying the wrong thing and hurting somebody. All of that will be gone. That perfection is coming someday, but that feels really far away right now. It may actually be later this afternoon. We don't have any idea, but it feels far away. Christians hurt each other. As I think over um, my adult years, the the things that have hurt me most, the wounds that are deepest, have all come from other Christians. Now, if you're outside of Christianity evaluating, you think, well, maybe I don't want anything to do with this. These are bunch of messed up people, they're going to hurt. Everybody is messed up. But I want you to see today that Jesus, out of love for us, provides us with a plan for dealing with when we hurt each other. That he doesn't just leave us to guess and figure out how to solve these problems on our own, but that he, in love, as a gift, in grace to us, he gives us what we need in his written word. That's what we're going to look at today. But let me just recap some of what we talked about last week. Last week, we talked about the general idea of discipline. We think of discipline primarily as a a negative thing, but actually it's a positive and a negative thing, especially in the Word of God. Formative discipline is the positive side of things. We talked about how it's like the, the stake that holds the young tree up so that as the wind blows, the tree can still grow straight. That's formative, it's positive, it helps shape the tree or the guardrail to keep you from falling off at the scenic lookout. It's, it forms your behavior, it holds you back from danger. That is formative, positive discipline. Those of you who are parents, you know that you spend a lot of time, especially uh, as when your kids are young, trying to formatively discipline them. And you got to do a whole bunch of the other kind too, the corrective discipline. Last week, we looked at how God tells us in the 12th chapter of Hebrews that because He loves us and because He is our loving Heavenly Father, He disciplines us. The main point was simply this, that if God loves you, He will discipline you. I want to pull out just a few of the verses that we looked at last week to remind us of this fundamental truth. Hebrews 12, starting in verse 5, said this, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Then a quote from the Old Testament. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It's talking about the reality of if you are a Christian, you've been adopted into the family of God. You've been received by God as as a son, legally speaking, sons and daughters. And because we are children of God... Our Heavenly Father disciplines us out of love for our good. If we skip down to verse 9, we read this, besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. And so we see there a couple of the purposes of God's discipline in our lives. It's for our good. It's always for our good. Now that was not necessarily true of our earthly parents, or as you as parents discipline your children, because sometimes sin rises up inside of us and we end up um, exacting revenge on our kids or just trying to intimidate them or put them in our place instead of loving them, and disciplining them in a, in a gentle yet strong way. But God never messes that up. God's discipline is always for our good. And then we're told that we might share in his holiness. Have you ever wondered what the, what the point of your life is? Why are you here on earth? Why are you still alive? It's simply this, to become more holy, like God is holy. And for the rest of your life, that is God's desire. That's what he's working out for you, that you will, through the next days, months, years of your life, you will become more like him. And someday, if if you're in Christ, he's going to completely perfect that and make you as Christ-like as possible, but progressively growing more like him. And that is the goal of God's discipline for us, to be like him. Verse 11, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. We are being trained by our discipline. It's not pleasant, it turns us into the kinds of trees that bear fruit that are peace and righteousness. And we all want fruit of peace and righteousness in our lives. The way that comes about is through the training and discipline. And then verse 14 said this, Strive for peace with everyone. So family, work, church, school, strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And we talked about how just that first part of the sentence, that feels really, it, it's irresponsible of God to say that, right? How could that possibly be a reasonable thing to say? And so we turned to Romans twelve eighteen, and we saw that God understands our weakness in that. He says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all you can't force someone to live at peace with you but as far as it depends on you you're called to live at peace with all but what happens when that isn't possible when that that clause in the beginning if possible when that turns out to be no it's not possible what do we do and what do we do especially when it's other Christians who have Hurt each other. We all deal with conflict and pain from other people. What do we do with it? We could go to Oprah or Dr. Oz or some guru on social media or a magazine in the checkout line, and we could get maybe some helpful ideas about how to deal with personal conflict. We'd probably get some unhelpful things too, and we'd certainly get one source contradicting the other source. But amazingly, out of love for us, God has provided us the tools that we need in that book that we call the Bible. The the newest part of that is almost 2,000 years old at this point, and yet he has assured that it is preserved for us, translated for us, so that we can know what he thinks in these situations. Because it turns out that as good as a plan might be for interpersonal conflict, Jesus has a better plan. We're going to hear this morning from the lips of Jesus himself what this plan is. Now, if you have studied Matthew 18 in the past, you're probably familiar with this. I've spoken about Matthew 18 in a few different sermons about church membership, about what it means to be a church, about dealing with personal conflict with each other, but we've never spent a whole sermon or even two sermons like we're going to do this week and next week, on this passage in Matthew 18. If you're familiar with it, I pray that you will be open to being surprised by it this morning. As I worked through it again and again this week and realized this has to be two weeks, it can't be one week, I was surprised at some of the depth, some of the, just the nuance of care that God has provided for us in this. Matthew 18 is usually referred to as the church discipline passage. I've referred to it that way many times. And in a sense, it's not really fair because there are lots of other passages that deal with church discipline directly, so it's not on its own. But here's the real unfairness. As soon as we label something that way, our defenses go up. I think it's Star Trek. Shields up. Trap, right? Or this little guy, when a threat comes along, it curls up into a ball. Anybody know what that is? It's not a porcupine. It's not a hedgehog. Who said that? Caleb, good job. It's an echidna, yes, from Australia. Of course he knew that. Cute little guy, right? But man, when he's threatened, shields go up. That is a temptation for us when we read passages, maybe like Matthew 18 this morning. They can challenge us. But I pray that today it is an encouragement to you. Not just to like build you up and, and cheer you on, but encourage as in put courage into you, infuse courage into you as we look at this. The series that we're working through is about the power and the beauty of determined love. So when a brother or sister in Christ is rebelling against God or is carelessly wandering off into danger, the loving thing for us to do is to go after them. To pursue them. Just like God was unwilling to allow us to wander off and perish in our sin, but he came to us in pursuit of us, in love for us, as Jesus, God in the flesh, so we are called to go and lovingly pursue those who are wandering or running from God. If it's your turn in the lifeguard chair, like in this picture, And a brother or sister is drowning in the surf. It is not loving to stay in the chair and offer up a prayer that they make it. Instead, you get down from the chair and you pursue your brother or sister in their distress and try to bring them safely to shore. So let's read our passage today. This is Matthew 18 verses 15 through 20. If you're looking in a Black Pew Bible, you'll find it on page 823. I'd encourage you to have a Bible out in front of you even though it's going to be on the screen because there's just something about having it in your hands, seeing it with your eyes in front of you, seeing the context around it that really helps it go home. Matthew 18, the words of Jesus to some of his closest followers. He says this, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among you. If there's a section of this that you're most familiar with, it's probably that last line, right? For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among you. Among them. And we tend to pull that out of context and just use it as a comforting thing. And especially if we're, uh, maybe we're having a prayer meeting and, and like only two show up, well, we can encourage each other. Where two or three are gathered, God is with us, right? Well, the truth is, even where one of you is, God is with you. Because if you're in Christ, the Holy Spirit is living inside of you, He never leaves you, He's always with you. And we'll see next week and in the weeks to come that what Jesus is talking about here is a very specific kind of with us. But today, what I really want to focus on is just that first verse, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So what is, it, what is this saying? What does it mean Why does it matter to us? First, notice that Jesus is intentionally intentionally limiting the scope of this. This is a narrow statement. He says, If a brother, if your brother sins against you, he's not talking about like a blood brother, all right? He's talking about within the church, brothers or sisters in Christ. Yes, it's very funny, Owen. Okay. Uh, Owen has lots of brothers and sisters, so he thinks it's funny. If your brother sins against you, if you, if you are in Christ, if you have been born again in Christ, then you have been adopted into the family of God. And you have not only God as your father, but you have billions of siblings, most of whom you have never met. The, the fundamental truths, the deepest things about who you are changed when Christ saved you. Yes, you still got your personality and your likes and dislikes and your accent and your family history. You've got all of that stuff, but who you are at the core changed to such a degree that now you have more in your core in common With another believer in Christ on the other side of the world who speaks another language whom you've never met, you have more in common with that person than maybe the person living next door to you, or maybe another member of your family here. Or to bring it into current events, if you are in Christ, your heart has more in common with a Ukrainian Christian hiding in their basement praying for their life right now than maybe... Your best buddy from high school. Or even make it a little more prickly. There are right now thousands of Christians serving as soldiers in Putin's army, knowing that if they disobey their orders, they're dead wrestling with what, I'm being called to do something that's wrong. What do I do with this? Attacking innocent people, destroying communities and all the stuff that they're wrestling with there. And yet, if you are in Christ, and if they are in Christ, you have so much in common with them at your core. They are a brother and sister, even more so than maybe your physical brother or sister. Jesus is talking here about specifically the church. He is not saying, you know, go out and and confront everybody around you in their sin. He's not saying you be the holiness police and you go stand on the corner and tell everybody the things that they're doing wrong. Or you go into your workplace and start blasting people, you go into school with bazookas out, just, you know, sinners, sinners, sinners. Sinner. Jesus is not saying that at all here. Now, we are called in certain ways to confront people outside the church. And call them to repentance so they might receive faith in Christ. But what Jesus is talking about here is specifically within the church. If your brother, another brother or sister in Christ, sins against you. Just the fact that Jesus would take the time to start this one paragraph in this way, for our sake, for our benefit, shows his care for us. He knows we're going to have to deal with this. So he gives us what we need to know. He says, if your brother sins against you, this might be kind of weird language for us, because we tend to think of sin only as a a vertical thing. I sin against God. You sin against God. But he's saying sin against each other in a horizontal way. If we think back to the, the Big Ten, the Ten Commandments, the first four of them are vertical Commandments, right? So, have no other gods before me, God says. Make no idols. Don't take the Lord's name in vain and keep the Sabbath holy. Those are vertically oriented commands. And then the, the last six of the ten commands are horizontal honor your parents. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. And don't covet. But here's the truth that we sometimes miss. Every horizontal sin is also a vertical sin. If I sin against you, you who are made in the image of God, you are an image bearer of God, I am also sinning against the one who created you. Add to that the fact that God himself gives us these horizontal commands like don't murder. So if I murder you, not only am I sinning against you, I'm sinning against the one who commanded me not to murder you. And so whether it's big or small, every horizontal sin is also a vertical sin. Even more than that though, every horizontal sin affects many more people than it would seem at first. So if, if I lied to you, About somebody else in the church. I would be sinning against you by lying. I'd be sinning against that person by slandering them. But I would do much more damage than just those three people. Even if you did the right thing, you said, I think what you're telling me is a lie, and you got no business gossiping or slandering about this other person, and you did the right thing and you shut it down even if you did that, just me trying to sin against you and get this other, against this other person, I am damaging the church as a whole. How can I say this? If you turn to First Corinthians 12, we see this passage. This is in the middle of, of Paul teaching about the church as the body. He says, we are all members of the body if we are the church. And in 1 Corinthians 12, 24, he says this, but God has so composed or put together the body, giving greater honor to the parts that lack it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. uh, Paul here is speaking of a reality, he's not proposing an idea. He's simply stating what is reality: that when we are, we are, when we are members together in a church, in a sense, you know, like the whole universal church, but very specifically in a church, a church body, we belong to each other as members of the body. And when one member suffers, all members suffer. When one member rejoices, all members. Rejoice. Even if you are unaware of it, Paul's saying the reality is somebody else in the body is suffering. You are also suffering. He's not telling us to suffer with them. He's saying you are suffering with them. That's just how the body works. Now, this makes sense. If you are, say, the left arm, and I am the right big toe, we don't have all that much in common, we're kind of at opposite ends of the body from each other, but if I get run over by somebody driving a forklift, ouch, yeah, if that happens, it doesn't just affect me, it affects you too, even if it's very indirectly, like you don't feel any of the pain on the toe, but maybe over the next couple weeks, because I'm hobbling around on crutches, you're getting worn out and sore too. Every part of the body is connected to other parts of the body. So let's go back to Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother back. So Jesus has made this, this narrow statement about it. it's. It's people in the body that we're talking about, but then he makes it even narrower. He says, if your brother sins against you. Now, if, if you're reading from a different translation this morning, you may see that worded differently, particularly if you're reading from the New American Standard Bible this morning. You would, you would read it instead. It would say, if your brother sins, go and tell him his fault. It, it completely removes the against you part. Well, what's going on there? Is it supposed to be there or not? Here's what's happening. Nobody has an original copy of Matthew. We have copies of copies, and in the process of making those copies, somebody along the line, either purposefully or accidentally, left out or added against you. We can't go back and figure out what happened there. We don't know what the original said. So is Jesus saying, only confront somebody who has sinned against you specifically? Or is this wider? Well, there's the argument from the body that would make it seem wider, right? If part of the body is hurt, then all the the rest of the body is hurt. But there's actually a good argument from the text itself that Jesus is specifically saying it's narrower. If you flip to Verse 21 of the same chapter, Peter, who just heard Jesus say these things, has a little bit of a question for clarity or maybe challenge. He says in Matthew 18, 21, that Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? You may know the rest of the story, but the point is when Peter comes back and asks this clarifying question, he says, how often will my brother sin against me? He uses that same phrasing in there. And there is no manuscript mystery about that verse. Every copy we have has that in there. So it's reasonable. It's in fact the responsible thing to do for us to assume that Jesus actually said against you. If this idea of manuscript variances is kind of a a new idea to you and it makes me a little unsettled, let me assure you um, We have more ancient copies of the New Testament than any other ancient document in the world, by far. The level at which they agree with each other is so much better than any other ancient document in the world. It is in a league by itself. And of these little things like this, is it against you or not? The few instances where there is a mystery none of them affect like a key teaching or doctrine of the church. The fact is, historically speaking, archaeologically speaking, the New Testament is by far the most reliable old document in the world, even when we come across little things like this. So, is Jesus telling us only when you've been sinned against personally, are you to confront somebody in their sin? Personally, I don't think Jesus is limiting you to that. Here's why. Not only do we have the body illustration, which we already talked about, but imagine a situation where you're in a church where somebody is sinning against, say, a child. Okay? It be a really terrible thing. And maybe you even witness it, and yet you say, well, that sin is not against me, and it's not even my child, so I'm not going to worry about it. I'm just going to turn around and walk away. <laughs> would, you, would you want to be a part of a church that thinks that's how we should deal with sin against our children? I don't think so. Not at all. So we at least have to leave the door open to there are situations where even if you're not directly sinned against... You are indirectly involved because you're part of the body. But for today, let's focus in on just what it says. Let's leave it with sins against you. So Let me read it again. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. This idea of being sinned against is different from being offended. You can be offended and have had no sin committed against you. We live in a world right now where a lot of people seem to think they should be able to go through life and never be offended, never have somebody say something offensive to them or challenge them in their viewpoints or say, hey, what you're doing is wrong or what you're saying is wrong. Um, To be offended feels like a sin to many in our culture. We have to resist that. We have to give each other room, margin, to offend each other. We're going to, as we live together as a church, we're going to offend each other. Now, I may say something about politics or vaccines or parenting or sports or something that, that offends you, and that's not necessarily a sin against you. If you came up to me after the service today and you said, all pastors are crooks, would I be offended by that? I would be offended by it. Would I think that you sinned against me? No. I would think you have a silly, misinformed opinion and that you're offensive, but I wouldn't think that you had sinned against me. Now, if you instead decided to start a rumor around the church that I was stealing from the church, then I would be both offended and I would consider that as a sin against me. We have to make sure that we differentiate between these two things. Just because you're offended doesn't mean you get to get your church discipline mojo on and get all fired up and go out and blast your brother. You have to be able to give grace, give margin for offense. Notice that Jesus says here to go alone. So you've been sinned against. Somebody in the body of Christ has hurt you, has sinned against you. What do you do? You don't go and gossip about it. You don't go and consult with your buddies. You don't bring it to a group as a prayer request. You don't talk about how awful this person is or how terrible they're sinning or anything like that. What Jesus says is you go to that person alone, just the two of you. Now that's scary, especially if you're someone who is. You want to avoid conflict at all cost. The idea of going to the person, confront, say, you have sinned against me in this way and I'm calling you on account of it. That would be very scary, right? It's a lot easier to go talk to somebody else about the problem than to deal directly with the problem. But Jesus is saying this himself here. He said, go alone, just the two of you, first step, talk to your brother." Talk to your sister. This is what has happened. This is how I received it. You have hurt me in this way. Let's talk about it. Now, I would say there are some good reasons to make an exception to that. If if you have been abused by someone and you're going to confront that abuser, take somebody with you. Take somebody big with you, right? Take somebody armed with you, okay? Okay? But there's a big difference between taking some backup for your safety and spreading the mess all over the place. And Jesus is concerned here with spreading the mess. Go, talk to them alone. As scary as that is, recognize that that's not me telling you to do that. That is your Lord and Savior telling you to do. The one who gave his life as a ransom to save you is telling you, go to your brother alone. As the first step. Will you obey and honor your Lord and Savior in this request? Or will you say, I'd rather just talk to somebody else about it. I'd rather gossip about it. If you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit's living inside of you. He goes with you for that confrontation. God has given you his word, like we're studying this morning. Is that enough? Is the word of God and the spirit of God living inside of you, is that enough for you to have the courage to go do this? I hope so. All right. Back to verse 15. What's the goal here? Why are we talking about this anyway? What is the point in the first place. Why even consider doing the scary thing of confronting someone in their sin? Jesus says, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So there's an if. He may not listen to you. He may not hear you. He may not respond in humility and repentance. He may rise up. He may run away. He may ignore you. He may scream at you. He may accuse you. But if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Sometimes it works. Even on that first stage, sometimes it works. Some of you in this room have experienced the beauty and the joy of that. Someone has hurt you. You've known either from the Word or from teaching from somebody else that the thing you need to do is to go to the person directly and confront them, in that. and that, that conversation, as scary as it was, turned out to be a beautiful thing. And that person confessed their sin, and they asked their repentance, asked their forgiveness, your forgiveness. And, and maybe you even became aware of your own sin in the situation, and you asked forgiveness, and it was granted, and you guys got glued together as brothers and sisters. That is the hope. But the way Jesus frames this is, you've gained your brother. This is a financial term. This is a business or a commercial term. It's the idea of profit. And I'd like to suggest to you that if you do this, and if your brother listens, and if you gain your brother back, you, your brother, and the church all experience profit, experience gain. Your brother who has hurt you is a, is a treasure of unbelievable value. Great enough value that Jesus gave his life to save this brother. Will you do the scary thing in order to gain this brother back? If the brother does come back, not only does the brother benefit, he gets forgiveness, his conscience is clear, he gets to come back into the unity and the fellowship of the church, he gets to to have that weight lifted off of him. he gets to experience love and forgiveness from another brother or sister in Christ. Not only does he benefit greatly, but you benefit greatly. Some of the people that I trust most in life are people that I have either had to confront in sin or have confronted me in sin. And we've confessed, and we've forgiven, and we've been bonded together. It's like soldiers in a war. The battle bonds you together. There are people that I would trust today who have had to say to me, you are a fool. You are sinning, and you need to turn around and go the other way. I trust them today. That's how this is supposed to work. Just yesterday, our daughter Katie had a conversation with a friend who really hurt her multiple ways a year ago, and they've been, they've been estranged since then. And Katie sent a text to Jen that said this, we met for about two hours this morning and it went so well. She shared so much and acknowledged so many things that happened and hurt me. She apologized for so much more than I expected, and I was able in turn to be honest with her. We have forgiven each other and are moving on, hopefully, into a fresh friendship. There's a lot of hurt in our past, but I think maybe joy for us in the future. Sometimes it works. Katie and her friend have forgiven each other. They have reconciled. Now, the future's not set. Maybe they're not really going to be that great of buddies anymore. But they have a hope for the future. Because they did the right thing. They addressed it directly. So your brother may benefit or gain. You may benefit or gain, but also the church benefits and gains. Each one of you as a member of the church, as a member of the body, are a unique gift to the body. The way God has put you together, your personality, the way that he spiritually gifted you, the passions and callings that he's given you, all of that is unique and is intended to be a great benefit to the whole body. And when a part of the body removes itself or gets pulled away or is, is separated, the whole body suffers. And if that peace is brought back into unity, into fellowship, into reconciliation with the body, the whole body gains. How does that happen? It happens through what Jesus has laid out for us here. So here's the main goal. As we talk about all this church discipline stuff, Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5, Titus 3, Galatians 6, we're going to hit all of those things, and they are all about this one thing. The goal, the purpose of church discipline is restoration, or we could say reconciliation. It's not to punish It's not to put someone in their place. It's not to make us feel better about ourselves or more holy than the other person or to be able to look down on the person or to get revenge. It's about restoration. It's about reconciliation. It's about reestablishing the wholeness and the holiness of the body. That's the goal all the time. Now it's hard work, it's scary, but the possibility of restoration, of reconciliation, of wholeness, of holiness, it's worth the risk, in my opinion. So, what would you do with this today? We really only talked about that one verse. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault private. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother back. What would you do with that today? Well, it's probably pretty obvious, right? Is there someone within the body of Christ who has sinned against you, who has hurt you? Jesus would say to you, go, go to your brother, go to your sister, tell him or her their fault. Maybe they'll repent. You can offer forgiveness, and you can be reconciled. Maybe it's a harm that you received just this morning. Maybe it's something you've been holding on to for decades. Maybe you've got somebody's face floating through your mind right now, and you feel the anxiety rising in you as you think about, man, if I was to do this, that would be like the scariest thing I've done in years. You you wouldn't go alone. Holy Spirit of God living inside of you. The Word of God as a tool beside you. They go with you. So, is there somebody? Do you need to have that conversation? Not because you want to, not even because you have this this grand hope of someday peace, but because Jesus told you to? Let me pray for you. And then we'll have a time of short reflection, we'll sing our last song. Father, this is, uh, this is challenging, this is scary for us. Lord, I confess that I've messed this up many times. It's so much easier to talk about someone with somebody else than to go and talk to them. Lord, I've allowed fear to prevent me from going and talking to people. I've hoped that maybe the problem would just go away, and even though I know the problems never just go away, time doesn't actually solve anything, it's, it's forgiveness that solves things, and even though I know that, I, I just hope that the problems will go away, I won't have to deal with things. Lord, I, I pray that you would fill us, infuse us with courage this morning. Lord, for those of us in this room who are like, this has nothing to do with me because I can't even think of anybody that I would need to go and do that with. Well, Lord, I praise God for that. For those of us in this room who, who do have that face floating through our minds right now, who do know who it is that we need to go to, Lord, I pray that you would give us courage to do it. We thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit living inside of us. We thank you for the gift of your word to go beside us. Lord, help us to to obey you in this. Lord, please work through that obedience to bring restoration, to bring reconciliation. We want to be whole and to be holy as your people. In Jesus' name.